Welcome to Over the Top, an overthrow produced podcast where you get a glimpse into the conversations that I get to have every day with coaches, players. But today we have not just a coach or a player. We've got a coach, a player, and a commentator. And probably what you don't know is quite the incredible chef. Ladies and gentlemen, Philo Brathwaite. What is happening, everybody? Thanks for having me on, brother. Yeah, what is up, brother? Do you remember that? Uh, you remember back in Jonesboro where you cooked me that incredible meal? Oh yeah, steak and potatoes, baby. Yeah, yeah. I was so I was like eating hot dogs the whole time. I was so grateful for it. I was like, wow, this is awesome. So just silly little hot dog in a like piece of bread with mayonnaise. <laughs> so yeah, we got to do better than that, man. We, we got to do better than hot dogs on tour. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get into like all the stuff that people probably want to know about, um, where does your chef background come from? Right. Cause you've done a bunch of things and most coaches I believe are like self-taught in almost every area. Are you like a self-taught chef? What's the background there? My uh, father was a chef actually. He was a uh, pretty damn good. Um, he was an executive chef in uh, Chicago. Most of my childhood and early adulthood uh, he worked for himself. Sometimes he worked at a bunch of, you know, pretty classy restaurants. Uh, he trained in London uh, before my family immigrated to the to America. And uh, yeah, he actually started cooking very young. Actually, when he was plotting his escape from the Caribbean, he actually uh, he told me he hopped on a merchant ship and learned how to cook on a merchant ship. And uh, <laughs> after that, then he went to London and studied for real and worked in some pretty bougie places there. And then came to the states and continued on and. Yeah, he was he was an amazing chef, man. So I picked up some some uh, tricks of the trade from him, and especially cooking uh, steaks and stuff like that. That was something we used to do a lot when uh, I spent time with him in Chicago. We'd have late night Scooby snacks, you know, filet mignon and whatever else he wanted to whip up. Yeah, and on the Philo scale, I feel like just in like the few conversations that we've had, when you say someone is like pretty decent at something you're like oh yeah pretty decent that's like pretty high praise so the praise that you just gave you know your dad is like whoa yeah he was he was legit man i mean i don't want to you know brag too much or anything but from what i i mean i didn't spend my whole life around my dad i knew him you know most of the time he was around but uh that wasn't really around you know what i mean so mm -hmm. was, i wasn't really around to see a lot of those things but uh what I did see, I mean, it was incredible, man. You could make miracles out of pretty much nothing. It was insane. Yeah. And uh, did you work in a kitchen for a while? I had a few uh, opportunities to do some kitchen work. Yeah. I had some, you know, prep chef stuff and some grill. And I did, you know, in and out Burger. That's not really real cooking, but you know, I've worked in a few restaurants. I did some stuff in Chicago as well. And, you know, had some experiences in the kitchen. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Was So you got into disc golf at like 19. Is that right? That's the first time I saw it. Yeah, I didn't really. I wouldn't say I officially got into disc golf till probably 2003. That's when I really got the fever. Gotcha. And so yeah. up to that, you had done, like, for work, what had you done? Landscaping. I tried all kinds of random jobs, air conditioning and heating. I tried, uh, I sold cell phones. I sold all kinds of crap, man. I, I tried just about everything I could to find something that made sense to me in this world. You know, I was trying to find myself in my early twenties. 
So I, I was a courier for the movie studios for a number of years, for like two or three years. I was driving around L.A. like a chicken with his head cut off in between pretty much every major movie studio and production office you can think of. Uh, yeah, it was pretty wild, man. I had a pretty uh, insane early 20s. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of the way for a lot of people who end up um, being coaches. They're just kind of like testing and figuring out things and it can be like oh yeah i was in the like i was a chef oh i did sold cell phones it's like what do those have to do with each other and it's like <laughs> bouncing back and forth and kind of like pinging uh, just like trying to find some kind of bearing on what is this that i'm like okay at i was doing a lot of music at the time too i was playing drums in a bunch of bands and starting to learn how to do that and yeah, there's just a lot going on. I was really curious. You know, I wasn't really sure what my niche was in the world, what my skill was, what my talent was. I kind of had a lot of random talents, but I didn't really feel like any of them really fit who I was wholly, you know, completely. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, right around then is when disc golf kind of started to really come into the fold, you know, probably 2003, like right after a lot of the early 20s, trying to figure yourself out and learn about the world. Yeah. Do you feel like that phrase, jack of all trades, master of none applied to you? Or do you feel like, yeah, no, I'm actually quite good at something? Uh, I would say jack of all trades and master of none at, at those, you know, at that junction in life. You know, I think I had a bunch of random talents and, you know, a bunch of uh, ambition to figure some stuff out. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't have anything locked in at that point. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I felt very similar. It's like, man, it's like, <laughs> I know to like really get somewhere in business and career wise, you got to be really good at something like specialize at something. And I feel like I can be like maybe above average in a bunch of things, but like there's nothing that I'm really like, that's what Josh should do. So some people I'm, figure it out kind of early, you know, there's people in high school that seem like they had a pretty good plan for what their adult life was going to look like. And, a lot of people just don't, you know, they don't even know what they want to go to college for. They just, you know, go do a bunch of general eds and figure it out later. But, uh, I don't know. I tried college, didn't really work out for me. Didn't really, you know, feel like my place. I was a little more curious about the world and school at that point. So I don't know. I just tried to hop out there and see what it was all about and see if anything made sense. And, you know, disc golf really didn't stick right away. It was definitely something fun to do and hang out and socialize on the weekends, but you know, back in those days, there's I, I had no idea there was even a pro tour in 2000, so wasn't really even on the radar. Yeah, yeah, and you're you're very like worldly traveled, like you're well traveled, and yeah. uh, kind of a question that I thought of it was like, okay, out of everywhere that Philo's been, like if he could have one meal from anywhere. Like if you had it right in front of you right now, like just like I just want this meal again, what would it be? Wow. You can give me top like three or whatever comes to your mind. If you don't have to like select the one, I'm very like non-committal. <laughs> I'm like thinking of all the people I might disappoint not choosing the place I visited and had some yeah. really amazing food, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, there's a few that really jump out. It's like just, there was really awesome atmosphere, really good memory, really good time, really good trip that really kind of stuck with me. Um, one was Iceland. And for as expensive as Iceland is, we actually got to hang out with a guy who's kind of like the mayor of Reykjavik and <laughs> he took us around, Arnie took us around and we got to go to an amazing tapas bar, not a top list bar, a tapas bar with mm -hmm. 
all the small plates. Oh my gosh, man. That I could go to that place three days a week easy. <laughs> it was it was incredible, man. The dishes were so good. Everything was so fresh and just that was awesome. Uh one of my trips to Croatia, we had dinner together at this restaurant and uh, it was like seven course meal. It was phenomenal. I could do that all the time. I think one of the things that stuck out the most was the squash soup. It's just phenomenal, man. It was beautiful. Just awesome environment. Uh, great crew over there in Croatia. They just actually had their uh, annual gathering this past weekend. And uh, I wasn't there to, to join them. I was in Texas doing the NADGT finals. But uh, what an awesome trip, man. If you get a chance to go to Vrajdin, Croatia, for the Drava Forester, you should definitely mm-hmm. look that up and spend a weekend over there with that crew. It's a good time. Um, <clears throat> I'd probably say one of my favorite all-time dishes is uh, Pad Seyu in Thailand. And that's another one I could definitely do all the time. So I think those would definitely be my top three. Dang. Yeah. So we've got kind of uh, almost a region lockdown, except for Iceland. That That's kind of, kind of out there. A tapas bar in Iceland. How about it, man? It's so random, but it was, yeah, yeah. it stuck with me all these years. That was 2016 or something, 2015, 2016. So yeah, that was a long time ago, but for sure, that was amazing. Yeah. It's always incredible. Just, uh, that's probably one of the coolest things about different cultures is how they prepare mm-hmm. food. I grew up in Japan, so it was like very fun. <laughs> and then, <laughs> but yeah, Cool. Man, you've got so many, uh, yeah, I really, I really do envy all the places that you've been. It's like, once you travel like that, it's so crazy. You just want to like, keep going. Like, man, can I just keep going different places? It was hard to stop the constant motion, man, when, when the time came and things kind of switched gears and transitioned more into commentary. Um, I have a very adventurous spirit about me and that was a big draw for me with disc golf was the travel you know, and getting to bounce around the country at first, you know, that's how it started getting to travel around America and see all the states. And, you know, I kind of lit the fire at first, you know, that was a big draw. And then when the opportunity to start doing some international travels came onto the grid, you know, that was another, you know, very exciting prospect about disc golf and all the different places, you know, potentially disc golf could take you. And now it's just amazing, man, how many different places you know, we can go as a disc golf community in different places around the world. You know, disc golf is starting to blossom and show up on the radar. It's, it's a really fun time to be a part of the game. Yeah. So tell me about those early years, right? When you started, you, you were really made aware of it in 2003, and that's when you really started getting after it. Yeah. Um, so what were you traveling like there? And it seems like you were one of the guys that didn't uh, begrudge the travel. Like a lot of people, it's kind of a it's tough, sure. man. No, it's tough for sure. Either way. I mean, if you're on there full time or part time or however it works out for you, if you're on tour and, you know, making the effort to show up to a dozen tournaments a year back in those days, that's a pretty big effort. You know, a dozen tour events, not just playing 12 events on a year, but actually traveling around. That's a pretty healthy, uh, you know, bit of dedication to do all that. But, uh, uh, I think I'd say the first uh, few years, I was very in and out when it came to tour. I wasn't like a main staple of the tour till I'd say probably early 2010s. But I'd say the first five or six years, I was definitely like a part-time tour player because I had to work and keep the money coming in because there was no money for the bottom dwellers like myself back in the day. So 
I was just trying to cut my teeth and get accustomed to tour life and getting accustomed to the competition level and seeing what was out there and seeing what the courses were like and seeing the other competitors and what they can bring. And it was all just a really massive learning curve for me because I was pretty ignorant to it all. You know, I, I had no idea for a number of years that they were even paid professionals. You know, were guys making money. I was just playing, having a good time. You know, and yeah, the first few years I would probably play, I'd say half a dozen tour events. I'd pick half a dozen where I'd try to hit pretty much all the NTs, all the, you know, PDGA national tour events that were available. Um, sometimes I would stick around for a week or two on tour, maybe two weeks tops was kind of like my limit. I was like just out there on the road all the time. I'd, uh, pretty much work two weeks, play a week, come back, work two or three weeks, go out, play a tournament. And I'd just kind of do that all season long till you know, USDGC basically. So yeah, the first few years it was kind of hit and miss or come and go, if you will. I wasn't full time just driving, you know, circles around America. I was definitely working a normal job. I was doing marketing for RJ Reynolds at the time. And that was a <laughs> interesting gig, but it was paying the bills and it gave me the freedom to go play disc golf pretty much at will. And uh I I did what I could, you know, to keep everything balanced out, you know, the best I could. Breaking even playing disc golf at that stage was was winning for me, you know. Yeah. And so the first taste of like professionals that you saw, who was that? It was like Rico or those guys in Cali or. Yeah, I, I did most of my early teeth cutting in Southern California. I played the SoCal series. I think my first full season was 2004, 2005, I believe. I think first full season I played M1. I may not have even been SoCal, but I did start playing my first year pro. I played the SoCal series and I played heavily on the California circuit my first four or five seasons as a professional now I kind of filled in the gaps from the tour events that I didn't play. So if there was, you know, a tour event that I'd missed and I'd find something locally or I'd play whatever monthly or whatever local thing I could play just to stay fresh and to stay active. But, uh, yeah, the early days were, were very rocky. There was a lot of, you know, coming and going and it was really hard to get consistent on tour, not being on tour consistently. Yeah, it was it was tough, man. It was really hard to get any kind of rhythm going. You know, it'd show up, have a, a good round or two, and then have a rough round, and then not be on tour for another three weeks or not play another big event with the top caliber. And it was on the road. You'd see everybody. You'd see the Felbergs and the Nate Dosses and the Steve Brinsters and the Avery Jenkins and, you know, you name it. They were there. The Climos, the Schultz, they were still out there doing it. You know, a bunch of names, young Ulibaris, young Barsbys, you know, tons of names, you know, very competitive players, you know, Matty O was out there. I mean, all the guys that are kind of in the twilight of their career now are like my prime competitors or guys that have pretty much retired and moved on to do other things. You know, those guys were in their prime and shredding, you know, and trying to keep up with those guys was seemingly impossible at the time. You know, it didn't seem like I would ever get to that place, but, uh, Locally, yeah, Steve Rico was my nemesis for a number of years. Getting past Steve Rico at all in Southern California was a feat. Um, Mike Adorius was another name that was a powerhouse in San Diego that would travel some. And when he showed up, you could expect to see him on a lead card consistently throughout the tournament. Um, <clears throat> there's other guys like Carlo Pelg and young Paul McBeth was coming up and Bert McEntee was strong and the Ekman brothers were playing good and Man, there's a bunch of names, man. Just names all up and down California that were solid competitors that gave, you know, really good competition 
throughout, you know, the early days of my career that really taught me a lot about being a competitor and, you know, learning the work ethic that I would need to survive on tour. You know, that all came from the early days. It wasn't like I figured it out later. I, I worked the whole time. Yeah. What did that work entail? Like, obviously you're working two weeks marketing <clears throat> and then you're off a week. Is that like, that's all going and doing tournament prep or is that like, okay, I'm, I'm going to hit a putting basket. What did that look like? So my uh, work schedule was I worked at night. Um, I had a night gig. My clock didn't really even start until nine o'clock most of the time. So I had mm. all day to play disc golf. I worked, you know, basically 9 p.m. till one or two in the morning, four or five hour shifts max. And uh, yeah, I had all day to play disc golf, you know, and I spent pretty much every day playing somewhere. Most of the time down in Huntington Beach because I was closest to my office or El Dorado, you know, something down on the south side of, uh, you know, Orange County, somewhere around there. Got some some practice in, spent a lot of time practice budding, you know, played night golf, you know. It was nonstop disc golf, man. Yeah, kind of a catch-22. <clears throat> yeah, um, lots of field work, man. Tons, tons of like just finding random parks. And not even having baskets around, man, just playing object golf, basically, and challenging myself to control the flight to whatever target was out there, a tree, a bench, a garbage can, a light pole, you know, whatever. You know, just make the disc stop by that thing the best I could with the shape that I wanted. That was really my best training, I think. Yeah, yeah. So it mostly accuracy, accuracy stuff, not like a oh, bunch yeah. of... Yeah. No, I gave up on the distance thing after I saw, you know... I'm in my mid-20s, and I'm watching guys like Paul Macbeth out drive me by 100 feet. And so there was no need to try to be a distance thrower at that point. I was like, okay, that's that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Let's not focus on that. There's not going to be an Avery Jam. I'm not going to be Avery or Paul or you know Simon and many other guys who could throw the disc much further than I ever could. Um, yeah. I just, I focused on accuracy because it's playing golf, you know, throwing it far is great, but if you can't make it stop where you need it to, then it doesn't really matter, you know? So, I mean, I guess you could scramble and you can do all that extra stuff, but I don't like stressful golf. So I trained myself to be accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems kind of, uh, like the musician route too. It's like, okay, you know, it's, it's yeah, very, kind of, uh, you kind of fit into what are my, what are my strengths? What am I good at? I don't have to, you know, play every type of, I don't have to play every genre here. I got to be good at a couple things within my. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. You know, like I, I am a little, I don't know what the right word is. Maybe grumpy with myself or slightly disappointed that I didn't press myself to work on some other skill sets like getting a good backhand roller game down. I mean, what a, what a clutch essential tool to have in the bag for so many different, you know, courses around the country. And I never really developed it. And, you know, who knows how much better I could have been, you know, with that shot in the bag, you know, stuff like that, you know, if I spent more time working on sidearm speed or something, you know, or just, I don't know, man. It's it's so hard to... I, all right, it's okay to say, okay, I'm not a distance thrower. I'm not an outright power thrower. Okay, that's one thing. But when it comes to skills, you know, like that's that's all up to you as the player to decide what are you going to utilize, you know? Like we all have the same options pretty much minus the caveat of speed, you know? It's like 
I saw all the good shots these guys were throwing, dropping rollers, but for some reason, like, I just couldn't figure it out, and I just never really put the time in to, to really develop it, you know, kind of straight away. Mm. So Yeah, it's interesting, because I, I, one of the things I think of Rico for is rollers. All kinds of rollers, too, man. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure, like, when I got into the game, I'm pretty sure, you know, Central Coast had you and Rico on a bunch of coverage together, and I can picture even now, like you and Rico on lead card together, I could see the holes on the course. And uh, maybe it was even like wintertime open or something like that. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Where, yeah, there, where Rico's putting down a couple massive rollers. Yeah. He did that, man. Yeah. This was after like the whole legacy thing for him. So, yeah, he was. He was a handful, man. Stevie had a well-rounded game. He had a good mix of pretty much everything that you could really hope for, you know, for being a competitive disc golfer, great roller game, solid sidearm game, fantastic putter, you know, really good control, putter thrower, mid-range thrower, fairway thrower. It didn't really matter. Like, the guy had solid game all around, you know, just sometimes he just didn't have enough, you know. It was, it was like that, you know, for him. He had some really amazing years. He had some really amazing shows. You know, and he, you know, he was, he won national tours. He won some awesome tournaments, you know, and competed amazingly and so many others, you know, right up there. But he's one of those guys that never really got that opportunity to really uh, be in that spotlight because he didn't get a major. But man, what a beast Steve was, you know, and still is a fantastic player. You know, even if he doesn't play all the time, like the skills are still there. You know, he knows how to compete. For sure. Yeah, he was one of those guys that really got me fired up about being a competitive disc golfer, just watching him do what he does and watching how he worked and how skillful he was. You know, I was like, yeah, that's, that's the guy to run down right there. Yeah. So I'm kind of interested slash surprised in the fact that, you know, you're talking about, I really wish I would have pressed myself maybe to get more rollers or more on the forehand. Um, because, my impression of you is that you're kind of a guy who figures things out. Like you're not a guy who naturally had a lot of like, okay, I naturally had speed or I naturally had like, I'm not going to go out and do high volume of stuff and just figure it out by sheer numbers. But you kind of put things in boxes and like, as you figure out, you kind of break things <clears throat> apart and you go, okay, what is this? Okay. Now let me put it back together in my own little system so what was yeah. it about rollers or forehands or? Uh, um, I think that um, the sidearm, there's a speed thing for the sidearm. I, I can do sidearms to an extent. I don't have a lot of speed with it, but I can shape them and I can get myself out of trouble. And it's a utility shot more than it is a staple of my game you know i'm not going to throw it off the tee on a 375 foot hole i just don't have the speed for it you know i never really have had the speed for it i wish i would have developed a little more speed but i think there was something about the action when i tried to go fast it was uncomfortable so i just like i'm not going to push the issue on that you know if it doesn't feel right and it wasn't a technique thing it was just more of my shoulder just didn't like that action you know it just mm. wasn't really keeping up you know and uh 
with the roller thing, it was just a control thing. It, it was too squirrely. And even when I did spend some time working on it, it just never really made sense to me. And my body, for some reason, also, it was just like the shape that my body needed to create. It just didn't like to make it. It didn't like to mm. arch really in you know, like the posture and the shaping and, you know, I'd need a very specific disc to throw a roller. It wasn't like I could throw anything on a roller. You know, I'd have to throw something that was a paper plate basically. Mm. I just didn't understand the technique and no matter who I watched or who I worked with, it would be okay <clears throat> here and there. I might use it on a, you know, massively wide open hole where I can get away with it if I mess up a little bit, but it just never became one of those shots that I relied on. You know what I mean? That I was like, oh yeah, this is a weapon that I can, roll around the basket and park holes with you know just the confidence never got to that level so i just never leaned on it. it's not that i could never do it or that i never did it it's just i never mastered it so i kind of you know strayed away from it and focused on the things that i was good at that did help me to score and the shots that i did see all the time and it's not that i didn't see rollers it just it wasn't something i saw all the time you know? Yeah, it just wasn't high enough in like your personal percentage for you to say, this is high enough percentage to fit inside my golf. Yeah, it'd be like a one hole per round sometimes or a one hole per tournament, you know, like I would I would really want a roller, you know, like I could think of going to play at, you know, um, Milo McIver in hole number eight on the east side is a roller all day. You can get there in the air, but it's such a skinny line and you have to throw it so perfect to give yourself a look or at least back in those days it felt like you did that was stretching a lot of people's distance back in the day you know 440 tunnel shot with you know trees that make a, a you know pretty narrow gap you know maybe a eight foot ceiling at the back end six foot ceiling you know not a lot of airspace once you get towards the basket and to sneak the air shot in there was truly a power thrower shot you know it wasn't a finesse shot at all you had to lace the thing in there and the roller was the better throw and I never really had it, and guys made the hole look easy because it was a pretty simple roller, plenty of space out there, and just you know, dump it out there and let it do its thing. And I was just afraid of it, you know. I was afraid of making the mistake and not giving myself an opportunity. So I just powered the, you know, the, the backhand shot down there and gave myself a look most times, but it just felt harder, you know. It felt like I really had to earn it. And these other guys were just, you know, they're on a routine roller and giving themselves a look. And I'm just kind of, gosh, man, why is it so easy for them, you know? <laughs> That's just how it was, man, you know, and I'm sure probably people thought the same thing when they saw me throw a rock or something and they didn't really have a great mid-range game or something. No, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. I, I tried to not take it personal and not be a big egomaniac about it. And just, you know, it is what it is, you know, like I didn't grow up with disc sports in my life as a kid and, you know, I didn't, you know, grow up with disc golf and watch disc golf and absorb disc golf. You know, it wasn't like that. It was just kind of like, hey, I found this game. It's really fun. I, I seem to be excelling at it. And, after a while, yeah, I've kind of learning, like, to kind of scroll it back, let me just to get back to more of the question you were asking. And it does kind of, you are right, like, it's kind of two things, though. You were talking about a whole sheer numbers thing. That's a big part of it. But the breaking things down and compartmentalizing, that happened after people kind of started to recognize I had some talent at this game. Not that I had skills, but I had talent. And that's when the whole breaking things down started to happen is that I was like, okay, I can make this thing move, but I can't make it fly the way I want it to. So then that's when I had to really start breaking down. There were no coaches back then, you know, it was just like, how do how does Heiser work? And I'd watch guys throw Heiser and then I'd kind of like take the mental notes and 
try to replicate it. And then obviously as all athletes do, you kind of make it your own, you know, physically, but I tried to stay as true to the, to the technical form as possible. I see. So you ran into the wall, that numbers got you and you're like, this, this ain't cutting it. No, like, I didn't even get to that work? point. I just played, man. I, I didn't even care about the numbers. I never practiced until 2004, two, you know, 2003. Like the first three or four years, I just played, man. I just hung out with the guys. I'd watch the better players throw. I'd try to pick up on things. I couldn't putt to save my life. There was just nothing really. I didn't, I, I could just make it go fast. And sometimes I'd make it fly straight, you know, and that was it, you know, and every once in a while I'd be some help to my doubles partner and give him a look at a birdie putt. And sometimes I would just be a loose cannon, you know, and just nothing happening. So it took a while, you know, and then after I kind of started to get, this is right, right when champion plastic came out. So this also has a lot to do with it too, because the technology got a massive upgrade from my first experiences with disc golf and throwing beat up DX plastic to getting some champion plastic. And then those things could hold torque like no other. And I was like, wow, all right, here we go. Now it's starting to make a little sense. But I still didn't really technically understand what I was doing. I was just trying to figure it out, you know? Like, I kind of understood the physics and the math behind the game and the science behind the discs and everything, but I didn't technically know what I was doing. If you said, Philo, describe a hyzer to me in 2003, I would have been lost, you know? I mean, I would have said, I guess, when you throw it with this angle, but that's just a part of it. It's really like, what are you physically doing with your body, not just the angle of the disc, right? So those types of things came with the breaking things down, you know, understanding kind of piece by piece, what am I physically trying to achieve here? Getting a good mental grasp on that and then just slowly building the blocks of consistency over the numbers game. Right. And that was a skill set that you developed for Philo the player. Right. Yes. Yes. And that, of course, this, again, this happened later on. This wasn't like right away, 2004, I was still just kind of playing and trying to have fun, trying to figure it out, still not really practicing much, but just, you know, I would probably say right around the end of 2004 into 2005 is when the real hard work started happening. Hmm. When the real fire and like, okay, I really need to start practicing skills and working on my putting game and you know, spending extra time on certain things that I was struggling with. And then that's when the process really started to happen for me. And then later that year, I played my first pro tournaments and really saw how far behind I was. And then that was like extra fuel to the fire to put in more reps and put in more time and spend more time investigating and, and you know, watching what players around me are doing that are good players and watching their mechanics and watching this, the disc selection and trying to pick up on all the little nuances, the body English, the position of the wrist at the snap, the path of their arm as they're going through the zone, you know, like which way are their feet pointed, you know, like all the little details that I didn't really understand the first few years. Then I started being a student of the game and picking up on all the things. And then I started getting better. And then the process of becoming consistent started. Yeah. Wow. That's so fun. It seems to me like you're a tennis fan, right? Oh, so so. So okay. so. I mean, I watch some tennis. I mean, I, I yeah. appreciate them. Those yeah, guys are phenomenal so, athletes. Yeah, there there was this uh, kind of era, of course, where technology and tennis changed very rapidly, right? The frames changed and the strings changed, right? And that mm-hmm. seems very similar to me, like how the plastic and disc changed. It's like all of a sudden you've got these guys who, when this new string comes in, this stiff string where players can just wail on the ball. And now it's not a game of, 
necessarily finesse and it's like wow this thing's cranking at you faster and volley gets a little bit tougher the styles change and then you've got all these guys that have to survive this new change in technology right because it's like now kicks are like spin is crazy now and the things you can do with a racket in these strings is crazy which makes just what federer did more remarkable because he like survived all those transitions and mm-hmm. thrived in spite of them yeah so i can only imagine like trying to learn like a roller with a you know a cheetah in dx versus okay here's a chance here, here comes a you know a star boss or whatever <laughs> starts creeping up and you're right. like what in the world is the what in the world is anheuser with a firebird like a champ right. firebird that like i don't have to try for an anheuser with my you know my archangel and now i'm throwing a champ firebird and i can't get that thing still for the life of me i gotta break my back to do it right yeah um i, I just i feel very fortunate for the time that i came into the game because my learning curve and that whole process of having to evolve with the plastic was very short you know like the first again like my first couple of years in disc golf were very sporadic and you know just kind of like a weekend warrior here and there it wasn't like i got the fever like right away and then all of a sudden like that's that was all i did like i still was doing other things and disc golf was just kind of a hobby it didn't really become like oh yeah this is my thing yet it was my jam completely until 2003 was when i really started getting super excited so it took a few years you know what i mean it it was a process it wasn't like a process like to enjoy the game but it was like i didn't really see anything happening in disc golf to really make me go oh that's something to go pursue you know so i don't know man like uh, it, it was it was a really interesting time for me man like just thinking about it now it's like it was insane it was those early days were a lot of work man when it came to the skill building it was a lot of hours man that's all i can say i countless hours you know they say the whole ten thousand hour mark i'm sure i blew past that and some you know i mean there's obviously skills training and then there's tournament prep you know and at the time i was traveling with steve rico and josh anton those two guys were my first taste of tour life and those guys were hard-working guys when it came to tournament prep you know they were on it yeah so what was the tur- what was the tournament prep like back then i'm sure the similar is what it's always been i mean you get your reps in man you go out there and you get your game plan down you throw a ton of shots you wear yourself out you know you try to find things that work that you can do consistently you know, some courses are a little easier to navigate than others. It's pretty straightforward, like going to Arizona and playing at, you know, De La, not excuse me, not De La, um, Vista Del Camino and at the fountain, like, you know, what you're, what you're walking into when you go to play that tournament, you know, it wasn't a big surprise. It's pretty much a hyzer factory. It's just how accurate are you going to be, you know, which for me, that played right into my game for a number of years. Then you go play somewhere else that's just completely different. And then you have to really go out there and work on getting the touch for the shots. You know, it's, that's really what it is, is you're just trying to find a feel that works, you know, and something that you can remember, something that you do all the time. And, and that's all it is, man, is you just hole after hole, just trying to formulate some kind of successful way to approach attacking the course. Yeah. And, from kind of the way that golf was set up back then, and whether it be the courses or whatnot, it it feels like today's golf is more, even more so a hyzer factory, just on both sides. It's just like, let me just pound something overstable, 
on a forehand or a back. If it goes right, it's a forehand. If it goes left, it's a backhand. I pound over stable and kind of, you can even get away with some straight shots with some beefy stuff. Is right? Is that courses nowadays? Is that just a skill set that's not, because you can't do that in Cali, right? Hard pan, you're skipping and, 60 feet. Yeah, I mean, you see, if you watch any of the Vegas tournaments or anything like that, yeah, you, you see how fast things are typically around Southern California, anywhere that's in the desert, things are going to skip and slide, anything hard, you know, that's the ground play is obviously going to be a big factor. Um, the the competitors, man, they've evolved, you know, I mean, thinking about guys like Avery Jenkins, they were rare, you know, guys I could push the disc 600 feet like that, you know, it was basically he and Simon, you know, were the two that were well known for it. I think Eagle was just starting to show up on the scene, but most of the other guys were like Europeans. There weren't really many Americans. I mean, Double G has always been the guy with a big arm, but again, he was a kid back in those days. So it's, you know, it's just like a different time. He wasn't like, oh, he's a seasoned veteran. He's a, you know, world beater. He's a well-traveled, you know, competitor. He was, you know, just starting out, you know, but he could still throw the disc a long way. But, you know, David Wiggins, you know, guys like that were still like teenagers, you know, and young men. And like most of the other guys that I knew that threw far were across the pond, you know, Marcus Kallstrom and Christian Sandstrom. And those dudes were the, the big, big crushers. You know, you get those three know and Avery together and that was pretty much your distance showcase pretty much every world's so uh yeah I mean the competitors are just thrown so much harder now I mean it seems like back in the day 65 miles an hour was pretty much a tour average now it seems like it's you know more 71 72 that's you know it doesn't seem like a lot but man seven miles an hour more is 150 feet you know yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It seems, you know, it, it could be more, you know, depending on the situation. You know, you get up into the guys getting close to 80 miles per hour, and you're just like, your mind is blown. There just weren't many guys moving the disc that fast back then. Not that guys couldn't throw hard, but it's just a different. Man, there's just so many of them now, you know, so the courses have to get bigger. The game has to evolve with the competitor. Because I'm sure if it was the same as it used to be 12, 14 years ago, like, it would be boring. I mean, I don't think it would be completely boring. It would be different because you'd be seeing all these massive arms trying to tone down, you know what I mean, and have to throw a lot more control shots than they do currently, unless if they're playing in the woods, of course, but, you know, especially on the, the bigger wide open courses, the OTBs and the, and the Vegases and stuff like that, where they forever of land to work with. I mean, yeah, it's, that's what people want to see. That's what's compelling to watch, and I don't blame them for evolving and making the courses bigger like you, you have to grow with the sport so i'm not surprised to see it um the competitors can make it happen the technology and the discs is there guys have the ability to do it and people want to see it i want to see it it's fun to watch you know it's fun to be in the booth and watch these guys mash 550 foot hyzers on one angle it's, you know you're like wish it was me you know like that's all you can say <laughs> you know I, I wish it was me i'm sure those people at home think the same thing you know i wish i could do that you know it's it's an exhilarating feeling oh absolutely i'm like i throw 67 and it's like oh my gosh i'm huge <laughs> you see yeah. these guys at the distance comp it's like 81 and you're like right whoa whoa is me <laughs> yeah it's like going to the batting cages and stepping in the you know 50 mile an hour box and then stepping into the 80 mile an hour box it's just a whole new world you know it's and there's just so many of them that's what's so exciting about it it's not just a couple of guys there's 15 20 30 guys that can pound the disc out there well over 500 feet effortlessly you know so it just makes 
makes sense that the game is growing and that the courses are getting bigger. You know, I'm not surprised to see it all. They gotta have some kind of arena to contain these arms. You know, want to watch them showcase what they can do. Right, but don't you miss at some point, like when you see Cole Radolin throw that like flip up that he just seemingly pulled out from you know generations past. It's like this little flip up putter. Like, oh my gosh, where where has this been? Is isn't it? It's still out there. I mean, obviously, when we play the wooded courses, there's tons of technicality. There's tons of touch required. They they don't just to get, you know, excuse me, they don't get to go full blast out in the woods. I mean, some guys do throw pretty aggressively in the woods, but, you know, I think most competitors try to utilize the touch in their game and disc down a little bit and try to play for accuracy instead of just raw power. And then you get to see those types of shots. You see guys like Isaac Robinson do it all the time, you know, he's such a fantastic approach player. He's got great speed, great touch, you know, utilizing the putters and keeping things in control at 300 feet and less with the putter is going to save you a lot of strokes. You know, it's so smart to do that. And uh, <clears throat> there's tons of other players, James Conrad, another guy who's just amazing touch for a guy who throws super hard. You know, Double G's got nice touch for a guy who throws super hard. Simon, the touch that he's got, you know, just incredible touch within 150 feet, being able to basically coast the disc from hand to chain on a straight line. You know, th- those, those types of tools, man, are priceless. Yeah. Are there any tools that you're seeing today from players that you're like, man, I should have, like, I should have known that this was coming. Why do I feel blindsided that people can do this now? No, not really. No, I think the skills are what they are. I think that it's just, they're expanding. You know, obviously people are, I'm not saying it to be mean, but I think the field is much more athletic than it ever was when you look at the competitors and what they're physically able to do and just their, you know, their makeup as a human being. Like these guys are some stocky, strong, athletic guys, young guys, you know what I mean? That have a lot of years ahead of them that are putting some pretty vicious moves on a disc, man. You know, just to be honest, I mean, they're putting some vicious moves. I don't know about longevity. You know, it might, their careers might not last as long as some of the guys from the older days that didn't have to go full bore, you know, every shot. I'm pretty sure some of these younger guys, you know, they don't mind doing it. But at the same time, there are some whispers of, I wish I didn't have to do this all the time. You know, I'm sure they would like to play some more traditional disc golf from time to time and not have to throw 75 miles an hour, you know, 18 times in a row off the tee. But, you know, I mean, everybody's out there doing what they got to do. You know, it's, it's, it's part of the game. You know, I, I think as we continue to grow and evolve, hopefully we do kind of infuse some of the old with the new and keep it alive. You know, I think those guys do miss it, even though they have abilities far beyond what those courses can offer them. Yeah, I uh, remember hearing Paul say one time that he was like, man, it's just like every time I have to throw a forehand, like any, every time a forehand is the better option, it's like 450 foot worth of a forehand. Yeah. That makes it the highest percentage play. Right. And then I'm just thinking, you throw that, what, once every 18 holes? Like you got to bust out a, you know, 70 mile per hour forehand one, one time and that those muscles are different. It's now warmed up. That's just rough. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, that and then I think it's even more that you see more of it than you ever used to when in 
you know, in tournament play on the on the highest level on the elite series. You know, you see these guys having to throw 420 foot sidearms all the time. You know, it's or it's a great setup shot for a shot into the fairway or something. You know, like that left to right motion is really starting to be a big thing on 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 tour and in disc golf in general and kind of breaking away from the hyzer factory. You're not saying that there aren't courses that are open and you can just send them, you know, as hard as you want. And, you know, it can be a bit of a hyzer factory in some places still, but I mean, I think of places like Jonesboro where, yeah, there's a big, big course, but you still got to do some shot shaping at Jonesboro. It's not just a wide open hyzer everywhere. You know, there's not a lot of room to just be free and, you know, just fling it out there. You got to play some position golf and throw some really tight gaps and miss some ceilings and miss trees. And for as big and wide open as the course seems, there's still a lot of technicality to it. So I don't, I don't know, man, like there's a little bit of everything out there and some people are just better at certain things than others. And that's just how it is, man. You know, it doesn't make anybody necessarily any better or worse than others. It's just, we all have different skill sets. We all have different things that we thrive at. We all have different things we're comfortable with. You know, some things are similar. Some things are different. Some guys are extremely comfortable on the putting green. Some guys are a nervous wreck. Some guys never really found the confidence. You know, there's just so many variables. You know, it's really hard to just say this is this and that is that, you know, when it comes to golf. Hmm. Yeah, I remember Jonesboro. Um, I, I carried for you, I think, Two, two or three mm-hmm. rounds. Yeah, yeah, and I just remember seeing your card every time. I remember thinking, "Good golly!" Like an extra hundred foot here is almost required to have a shot at taking this thing down. It's right. like if you're not throwing a five hundred foot line at Jonesboro, fairly accurate, you're not getting to some of these landing zones like over the like over the water. You just got no option right. to take it over the water in two on hole. What is that? Sixteen. Sixteen. Maybe? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like. Man, yeah, you can. You just got to throw like the perfect shot for the, you know, not massive arm. The guys that have the normal arms, you you have to throw an absolutely perfect shot. It's not that it's impossible, but it's just a low percentage that you're going to get to the spot where you can get to the place where you can go across into with the right angle and a window that's reasonable to go after. You know, it's not impossible. It's just difficult. Yeah. There's yeah, but, a lot of decision making on tour for guys that don't have a massive arm, you know, that you got to play chess out there, you know, that and a lot of these guys can just go full blast and there's not a lot of danger for them a lot of times to go ahead and go full blast. You know, yeah, I see guys got to play technical. Yeah, I remember that cuz you weren't playing like the best rounds of your life, but I also didn't feel like they were awful. I was like, I mean, how many more <clears throat> strokes can he shave without being without having an extra 100 foot? It's like you're not missing the landing zones by that much for the no. distance that you're throwing. You were kind no. of on point. The wind reads were good. It was all there. I was like, this is just a tough tournament if you're a 450, you know, guy. Exactly. Yeah, if you're if you're capped out 450 on tour these days, you know, you're you're going to struggle. You yeah, know? it's 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 and I'm like that's like capped. I mean, full blast as much as you can give it, and you're getting to 450. You know, like that means that you can't like your control shot's going to be less than that, right? So, yeah, that's just not really hacking it on tour anymore, man. It, it used to be a fantastic number if you had 430 under control and stop it on a dime, and you were walking on water out there practically. But now it's just like a basic fairway shot dang you know yeah so if you were building say you had a player that yeah you know had had the stuff to make it on tour and 
you know, you think, okay, five years from now, they're going to have a shot to, you know, prove it on tour. What, how are you building that player? Yeah, putting green out, man. You know, if you can't putt, it doesn't matter how great you can throw. So if I were building a new player, I'd build up that belief and I can make putts from anywhere. You know, that's always going to be your saving grace. No matter how well of a thrower you are, there's going to be variables that are unseen and things that you can't predict. You know, things bouncing off rocks and trees and sticks and whatever else out there, you know, the unseen potential you know like you just have to have that belief in your putting game so i would always start there i -hmm. would really work on creativity on the putting green and obviously having your main bread and butter motion down but then being able to mix it up and be creative and get the disc in the basket from a multitude of different actions you know work on your spin putts work on your lob putts work on your anheuser putts work on down on a knee putts work on whatever thing you can do to get the disc in the basket you know in a makeable range you know circle two or closer not necessarily putting from the fairway, but, you know, give yourself 50 feet and in. If you feel extremely confident from that range, you're going to be a successful disc golfer. I would start there. And then after that, then it's just all about shot shaping and consistency, man, because that's what disc golf is. That's what golf is in general. It's, can you make the disc move the way that you want and make it stop where you need it to? Mm-hmm. And you distance know? on each side, do you think? Yeah, uh, I think the, I mean, it's pretty, uh, I would say pretty apparent. And like, if you're not throwing 400, you know, stock sidearms and pushing the disc well over 500 feet backhand, you know, it's going to be hard to keep up. You, you might, you might do okay, but you know, if it's not locked in, I, I just don't see it happening for you. Yeah. So that's like, uh, that's like 60 miles an hour on the forehand and like 70 on the backhand. Something like that. Basically. Yeah. Is what that it's comes a, out to. Yeah, 400 feet under control of the sidearm. You can work the disc both ways, you know, keep it straight, move it from left to right, right to left. And then if you can mash those backhands out there under control 500 feet, yeah, you'll be, you'll do all right out there if you can putt. I mean, again, if, if you can't putt, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, I, I can say him into that because that's my game right there. <laughs> yeah. Got to have the- a complete game. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to go out there with, you know, two thirds of a game and think you're going to be successful. It's just not going to work. You got to have all three phases of the game pretty solid, pretty solid to be successful on tour. Yeah, for sure. So are you thinking, so what's kind of the, you're still playing, you've played 158 pro tour events, cashing like 137 of them. It's an incredible number, right? But you're like just won the Tim Selinski. Yeah, well, right? that was a while back. Yeah, this past May, but yeah, recent, recently. Yeah, that felt yeah, good. Yeah. I'm, oh, I'm sure it felt good. Everybody, I mean, it was a blast to watch. So that was crazy because you went in a playoff. Yeah, I had uh, Kale Lavisca in a playoff. I went into that round up by three strokes, I believe, and he caught me after I think it was just six or seven holes. I had a feeling it was going to happen. I don't know why, but that's all. It's just kind of how golf is. It's really hard to just walk off with a tournament anymore. You know, it never was easy to just walk off with a tournament, but for some reason, I had a feeling that day was going to go that way that, you know, I was really going to have to earn it and grind my way to that victory. That's basically what happened. Yeah. Do you like those victories more where it's like, man, I had really had to work for it or you just like uh, to enjoy the cakewalks now? You know, there's nothing wrong with cruising to victory lane, man. You know, if you get the job done early and you can relax the last nine holes knowing it's all wrapped up, there's nothing wrong with that, you know. But uh, 
it does feel good to to win a tight battle like that. Um, I, I wasn't really wanting it to be that way necessarily because it's mm-hmm. more stressful, but it does feel very rewarding when you get the job done. And, you know, there was a bunch of plays that day that could have gone either way for either of us, and we could have been flipping spots. So I'm not going to boast like I did something amazing. I played strong, you know, solid, strong disc golf. I made putts when I needed to. I gave myself opportunities, and I just had one more opportunity than him. You know, he opened the door on the playoff, and I closed it. And you know, that's all there is to it. Uh, I mm. love Kale. I'm, I'm sad on some levels that he couldn't win because he's such an awesome player. That's majorless as well. You know, and. Mm what an awesome career he's had and continues to have. He still plays amazing disc golf and saw him at Worlds, you know, Masters Worlds, taking Joe Revere to the limit. It was, you know, inspiring to see him continue to play at such a high level. And when he shows up on tour, he seems to be successful still. So for all the things he has going on in his life, to be able to show up and play the caliber of disc golf Kale does speaks a lot to his dedication and his work ethic and just his ability to go out there and crush at any given day, you know, and, I didn't think I was going to have a chance against Kale going into the Tim Selinski, honestly, because you look at the numbers, he was averaging 20 points better than I was per round. Hmm. You know, and I'm just like, yeah, Kale's playing really good, you know, and seeing him play a couple of times earlier in the year, he did really well in uh, San Diego, went head to head with Bobby Music and battled it out there. And it's just like, man, like, I just didn't really, I thought it'd be like he and Dave Felberg always shows up at the majors. Somehow he just, cyborgs up and shows up and <laughs> plays phenomenal golf but his putter wasn't on that week and mine was you know and that was the difference maker and a couple other guys played really well that week you know lefty al came out swinging the first round and gosh man my boy from ohio i see his face right now i don't want to say the wrong name got a wicked sidearm he got third place in the tournament, I believe. But um, mm-hmm. I don't know why his name is eluding me right now. But uh, I've seen that guy around for years, and he just never was, was like, a, like a touring player. But, man, so talented and so good. And he had his chances, too. He just kind of slipped up right at the end. or He could have been in the playoff. I think he drove OB off the tee, and that was pretty much a wrap for him on 18. Mm-hmm. So it was just like it was a battle the whole way through, and it felt really good. And I think major, the main thing was just like, being able to say I won a major, you know, I think that was the main thing. I didn't really care that it was a pro major or a master's major. It was just, I, I really felt like that validated my career after so long, you know, and missing a couple of opportunities to be in the runnings for a major as a MPO player and, you know, not getting it done, you know, after all the years of hard work. But there's so many other guys that are in the same position that I was that were major lists that were completely dedicated to disc golf. And, you know, I wouldn't have been salty about it if it never happened, but it's definitely one of those ambitions that you hope comes to fruition if you spend, you know, two decades in a game. Right. And sports are just so brutal in that way. It's like you can give everything you got. And sometimes it's just like all these people are that close and you just know, like they didn't even necessarily do anything wrong. Right. It's just like, Sports are just absolutely brutal like they that. They can be. I'm going to click the light on so I'm starting to get kind of dark. Yep. Sorry. You good? There we go. Now he's back. He's back. There's a little better. A little light. Getting a little too intimate there. 
<laughs> so not that I'm kicking you out of the player world because you're still playing. Sometimes, yeah. Um, I mean, my schedule is a lot broken down now because I'm doing more commentary for DGN than playing. That's just kind of how things have shaken out over the last few seasons. Uh, I lost my player's card too, so I'm not technically a touring. Uh, I guess I, I technically am a touring professional, but I don't have mm. a tour card, so I have to get exemptions pretty much for all the tournaments that I play or get lucky and sign up at the right time kind of thing. But we had a deal worked out where if I wasn't in the booth and they just kind of saved a spot for me and got me in because they asked me to do it. I didn't ask to do commentary. So I kind of was like, well, since you guys asked me to do commentary, make sure you got a spot for me to play when there's you no know, spot in the tournament. You know? And that kind of worked out for a couple of years and then they changed the rules and now you absolutely have to have a tour card. Those players get first option to play and if I get an off wait list then I guess I get to play if not then I'll continue doing my ambassadorial touring and playing abroad and playing whatever else I can in between and you know doing what I've been doing man yeah yeah is the uh is there kind of a is there a plan or are you just kind of riding it out are you thinking coaching commentary like what's kind of the next when you're completely done playing what do we kind of what are you transitioning to i don't know if there's going to be an officially never playing again i think i'll be out there like the stork you know playing worlds as a legend in my 70s hopefully if you know i i get to hang around that long if we all do (laughs) yeah yeah the world keeps spinning that long you know i'd love to continue to play disc golf as, as long as i can on some competitive level but uh I mean, right now, I mean, the main gig kind of is being the commentator. That's the, that's the one that the disc golf community is kind of giving me the it's okay and we like you doing that and the network seems to be doing well and they seem to like me there and I enjoy it. I'm having a lot of fun. It was not the transition I was anticipating, but I'm grateful for it and I'm really I'm really enjoying it. I have a lot of fun in the booth, no matter who I'm working with. And I don't know. I, I feel very honored. Uh, I shouldn't say I don't know. I do know that I feel very honored and very uh, humbled. And, and, and I'm, I'm very proud to have been selected for this job, to, to have been trusted to tell the story of disc golf tournaments for the community watching and for all the people who don't know disc golf and to be able to be, you know, their, their guide through the event and, hopefully educate them on some levels and to be as much of a helpful, insightful character on camera, you know, on TV as possible. You know, I'm not doing it for my own ego or anything. I just, they asked me to do it. I had to think about it for a good while. I wasn't like, yeah, let's go. You know, like, (laughs) oh, it took a couple of months for me to come to the decision to, yeah, let's go for this, you know, and give it a good, a really good effort, you know, and do my best. You know, I'm happy I did. You know, I really am. I, I've really been enjoying it. It's a lot of fun to see things from this angle, you know. Yeah. Tell me what um, tournament prep looks like as a commentator. So it seems very similar to how I would imagine you go about turn, tournament prep for a player. Yeah. So what what are you doing during those commentary prep rounds? Are you walking? Are you playing? It depends. Um, most of the places that, I get to do commentary for I've competed 
a number of times. So I typically know the course pretty well in and out. Um, I always go do a walkthrough. Um, if we're on site, then I spend time on the course and I watch how guys are playing and how they're attacking holes. Uh, I take my range, my Bushnell out there and I shoot as many random trees to get numbers, to get distances into the pin from the fairway, from that tree, from this tree, from that stone, from that stump, whatever, anything to be able to help people understand and have some kind of reference for what they're about to see. Um, any changes to the course, I'll throw shots to have an idea of what it feels like for me, which doesn't always say a whole lot when you're talking about watching the best players in the world, but at least I have something I can kind of reference it off of how much energy they're going to expend on a shot, you know, or how hard it is to actually make the shot happen. You know, for even a guy with my abilities, sometimes I'm impressed with the difficulty of the shot and how well the field throws it, you know, and it's, not that I'm like the standard or anything. I'm not saying it that way at all, but just I know what it takes to compete at that level. I've been there, you know, and, and when you see certain shots, you can really appreciate what you're watching on the screen and how fearless they play. It's just, it's phenomenal, man. It's so cool. It's really fun to watch, man. I, I try not to fanboy out, but I really am a fan of almost all of those guys, practically all of them that are, you know, the staples of the game, the guys that we see all the time. And even I'm a big fan of these guys out there just trying, man. I, I want to see them succeed. I want to see them do well. I don't hate on anybody, man. I root for everybody. You know, I want to see everybody do their best. And it's just, that's just not how it goes, man. Like some days you're, you're good and some days not. Right. Yeah, I, I uh, can tell because it will blow my mind when you say something. And I, I think you say, man, usually the wind, like usually wind on this hole is coming uh like left to right but it looks like they're getting this kind of wind today and you'll just pull out something like that i'm like that's somebody who's played this course year after year after year and knows it's always a left yeah. to right on this hole what is happening today yeah what is this? that's yeah i mean that, i think that's a big part of the reason why they asked me to do it in the first place is because i have a history of going to these tournaments year after year after year and competing well and holding my own and just being able to to rattle off the information just bang off the top of my head because it's just like muscle memory. I can tell you exactly what it feels like to throw hole number nine at De La Viega or hole, you know, 13 east at Milo McIver or whatever. You know, it's like it's, it's just ingrained in me. You know, it's a part of who I am. So, you know, I imagine that has a big, big part in why I got this role. It's just because I've been there so many times and I guess I can articulate myself clearly. So. I got those two things working for myself. Yeah, I think it speaks to uh, your history as a player and just you kind of having to work to figure things out. Because I remember some someone's like, someone's getting ready to throw a shot, and you're like, yeah, he, you really want to be able to walk up here, but you can't because this is kind of like loose gravel here, and you're not gonna have good footing, and this hill's pulling you like European off the open, shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like sixteen. Yeah, I know exactly I'm like, what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm like, dude, that's that's stuff that nobody thinks about. And as a coach, I have to like, if I, it feels like that's what you would tell if you were a caddy. Like, hey, you you can't walk up there because right. you that's gonna that hill's gonna pull you to the right. Or like, if you're gonna try to walk up, you better stable up because that disc is going right off the get. So, yeah, I guess you know. After you played disc golf for a long time and you've seen hundreds of thousands of shots from the world's best players and the world's not best players, you know, and everything in between, uh, I guess you can 
kind of develop an eye for things, you know, and you can kind of predict the future a little bit based on what you see about to happen, you know, like in my opinion, and this is how I try to coach people is the body doesn't lie. You know, the disc tells the story of what your body did. So if I'm watching the body, I can tell you what's going to happen. You don't have to throw the disc. You could stop and freeze frame it before you let it go. And I could tell you what's going to happen. If you told me what kind of disc the person has just by looking at what their body's doing, I already know what's going to happen. It's, it's hard to deny it. You know, so you've seen it so many times, you know, if a guy reaches down, he's going to swing up, you know, if a guy reaches up, he's probably going to swing down, you know, it's, it's just like, you can't argue these things. It's just what happens, you know? So after a number of years of watching it and being a student of the game, it's just kind of, I don't know, second nature, man. It's like I can think of dozens of times over the last couple of seasons where you just kind of see it coming. You know, it's not like I'm rooting for bad things for for people or you know, or you know, expecting greatness or anything. But it's just sometimes you can see it. You just kind of feel the moment and what happens and the mistakes people make generally or the great things that people can do. I don't know. There's a lot of variables out there, but sometimes I just. Sometimes I feel like I'm telling the future, man. But I just, I just, I'm just paying attention. That's all it is. I just see what's happening, and I can diagnose it quickly and kind of dissect it. And usually, I'm right. I'm not always right. I know I'm not always right because I've made bad calls live on TV, and I'll own it. You know, like I'm not. I don't have to be right all the time. I definitely am not one of those types of people. But you know, most of the time, I feel like I'm pretty accurate to what's happening. Do you have any times that come to mind where either you were right on the money or you were definitely off the money? Um, I remember the Gannon Burr shot when he was battling out with Nicolas Santola two years ago at USDGC when they were on hole 13 and he got in some trouble off the tee pad. And he goes to throw, he was kind of tied up along a tree on the other side of the hill and he had a really awkward stance and he had this really neutral flying green mid-range in his hand and I was like, that's the wrong disc. And sure enough, he threw it out of bounds. You know, and I just saw it coming. I was like, everything about his setup right now and the disc he's throwing, that thing's going out of bounds. And sure enough, it did, you know. And there's been dozens of times where I saw the disc leave the guy's hand and I thought for sure it was going to be a beautiful shot and it's 55 feet away or something. I'm like, whoop, foot and mouth. You know, I say it all the time. I'll say it on live TV, foot and mouth when I'm wrong because I know I'm not going to be right all the time and I'm not afraid to own it, you know, and say, hey, I was wrong. I missed that call. You know, it was better than I thought or whatever, you know. I'm not, my ego's not, again, not that big. I want to give those guys the most opportunity to, to shine, you know, it's not about me. It's about them. Yeah. Are there any players who you like look at and you're like, man, I would love to just coach this player. Do you ever think about stuff like that? Sometimes. Yeah. There's a few guys, you know, that I wish I could spend a little time with them. There, there are some, I mean, guys that I watch that are at the top of their game, there's, I mean, like, there's nothing I'm going to teach Simon Lazat, or there's nothing I'm going to teach, you know, Paul McBeth or Ricky Wysocki or Eagle or any of those guys, but some of the guys that are coming up, you know, there's sometimes a couple of things I would like to just kind of pull them inside and say, hey, have you ever considered this, you know, or have you ever considered that? Not say, you should do this or you should do that, because who am I to tell anybody what to do? But 
there's just so many guys out there that are so talented that when you're watching them on TV, you're like, man, if he could just develop a little bit of this into his game, like you could see it potentially happening for him. But if they don't see it happening for themselves, you know, then they're probably not going to do it, you know? And it's not for me to just go out there offering my opinions to everybody. You know, it's not the kind of person that I am or that I feel like I need to be. If somebody's interested and they want my take and they come and ask me about it, I'm more than happy to give them my opinion. But uh, I don't go seeking those opportunities with the pros. But there are definitely a handful of guys that I would love to pull aside and spend a good couple hours with them and just see if we could tweak a couple of things and see if it makes any difference for them. Because those were the moments that made me the player that I am, honestly, bro. I mean, if it weren't for guys like Thelberg and Climo and Rico and Bobby Music and countless other guys that spent a little time with me on an afternoon doing a practice round and just giving me some knowledge, giving me something to think about, giving me something to go home and work on after the tournament, you know, just giving me some homework to do, being a mentor, you know. Uh, I wouldn't be the player that I am because I didn't figure all this out on my own. There's no way, man. You know, like we're all part of the same system here, you know, like all of us relied on each other, especially earlier on. You know, we wanted the competition to be great. We had to make each other great because we weren't just picking up new competition every other year like we are now or every other month, it seems. There's another guy popping up on tour that nobody's heard of that's a 1,020-rated player that can shred it just as well as anybody else. Not saying he's consistent yet, but he's got the game and he shows up and does it. How many times have we seen that? You know, like Parker Welk, where did that guy come from? Wins DDO, you know, like, I hadn't even really heard the guy. Like, yeah, he does great in SoCal, but he hadn't been a name on tour and just shows up and wins DDO. You're like, whoa, you know, like, okay. You're like, that kind of thing is happening all the time. Look how many unique winners were on tour this year. Guys that hadn't found the winner circle yet that got it done. You know, it's just, that wasn't the norm back then, man. Like, the, the beast one back in those days. You, you didn't beat Felberg. You didn't beat Climo. Not some regional touring pro. No, that didn't happen. It's, yeah. yeah. It's a different era, man. Completely different era. Yeah. It's a cool time. Cool time to see for sure. And I, Absolutely. I, I think I, I bet most of, of us never thought we'd get here, man. You know, I, I'm sure that there are lots of people who doubted we'd ever get this far, that, you know, that we would get to the place where disc golf was compelling enough to be on TV. And now it totally is, man. There's so much competition, so much talent, so many stories, like so much. Now we actually have some history that we can look back on and compare, you know, like we were in the building blocks of creating the history 20 years ago, you know, and further back. And now we're at a place where we can look back at that history and kind of see how far we've come in three or four decades and really go, wow, we've made some pretty big strides, you know. Are we done now? I mean, of course, there's still work to be done. There's still growth, but we have come a long way. For sure. And I think with that, we're probably going to finish out the first portion of this, which was the uh, portion. Thanks, everybody who hung around that's not a patron. Follow before we leave, uh, Philo, before we leave this portion. For those listening, if you've added value here and they want to support you, what are the best ways for them to do that? Wow. Well, um, 
I would say the easiest ways to support me is directly through my sponsors, uh, Innova Champion Discs. My tour discs should still be on sale. My starred Swirly Destroyer and my Champion Metal Flake Glow Hawkeye, which is pretty awesome fairway driver and very easy to throw. Um, Millennium Discs should have some of my Falcons if you want to do that. All that stuff does support my touring efforts and bottom line. Um, I do have some Team Philo swag and some odds and ends left over from this year's journey. So uh, if you're interested, you can always hit me up on Instagram and see what I got left. I think I've got some more Philo hats and Philo shirts, and I've got some plastic laying around. So if there's any odds and ends you might want to scoop up from me, I don't have an official online store yet working on it. I'm still working on it. I'm always working on it for some reason. <laughs> I haven't got it done. But anyway, you can always hit me up on Instagram if you're interested in any of that stuff. Uh, I don't really ask for donations or anything like that. I think that's kind of, I don't think that's necessary, but, you know, if people ever wanted to, or, you know, you can always hit me up on a Venmo. I'm on the Venmo thing at Philo underscore Brathwaite. If there's anything like that you want to do, don't really ask for it, but I always throw it out there if people ask. So there you go. Um, yeah, Boom Clothing, uh, we're trying to get back online. The hats are starting to get a little more consistent. Um, hopefully the website should be up and running. Um, I think the Instagram page is open again, Boom Clothing. So those are pretty much the main ways to support me if you want, or you can book a lesson with me. Also hit me up on Instagram. I do offer virtual lessons if you're interested. So off seasons here, I'll have some time kicking it at the house. Cool. Virtual lessons. I didn't even know that you did that. I, I figured it would be in person, of course. I do but... that. Yeah, I just had one this afternoon. Sick. Yeah, just client hit All me through... up on Instagram. Yeah, Instagram? Yeah. Yeah, this cool. You know, got a direct message from the guy's wife trying to make a little surprise for him on his birthday, and it's super easy, man. You know, the weather's good. If not, you can do virtual, or you can come hang out in the garage and throw into the net. Sweet. Yeah. Cool deal. Well, thanks for tuning in, patrons. Hang around. We're gonna get into our Patreon form or Patreon questions here. So, thank you again. Peace out. <laughs>